welcome to the second in a series of podcasts from the Mary Rose Museum while it's shut under COVID-19 lockdown restrictions. Only this time, we're going to be doing it on video. My name is Adrian Bowles, and I've worked on many projects for the Mary Rose Museum over the last 25 years or so. Today, I'm going to be talking to Professor Eleanor Schofield, who is responsible for the ongoing conservation of the ship and all the objects in the museum. This conservation began in 1982, when the ship was famously raised from the seabed. From then until the present day, the ship has lain in the same dry dock here at Portsmouth Historic Dockyard, still in fact on the same cradle which was used to lift her all those years ago. She was first sprayed with water, then with chemicals, and then finally air-dried. For 34 years, she underwent this extensive conservation program, and in 2016, this museum, built around that dry dock and the ship itself, was finally finished, and visitors could at last see the Mary Rose on open view, no plastic or glass windows to look through. She's now contained in what is effectively a very large environmentally controlled showcase, possibly the biggest in the world. And as I said, the person who's in charge of making sure the temperature and the humidity are all at optimum levels for preserving the ship and all the objects on display is Professor Eleanor Schofield. Eleanor has worked here since 2012 and picking up on the work of her predecessors, has spent literally days and nights researching, testing, experimenting, and defining groundbreaking scientific techniques to make sure the ship and all those objects are cared for in the best possible way. And today, we're going to find out how she does that and why it's so important to keep doing it while the museum is closed. Hi, Eleanor, great to see you. Hi, you too. So here we are, the mu museum's shut, but obviously your work has had to carry on. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so yeah, well, the museum's closed, um, but everything to do with caring for the collection continues. Uh, we can't, when you see around us here, everywhere where we have an artefact, the, the air that that artefact is in is controlled. So it has a controlled humidity and a controlled temperature. Um, and to create that takes a lot of equipment that you can't just turn off. Actually, some of it relies on chillers, which have cold water in and, and there's pipes all around this building and if we turned it all off it would just remain stagnant and there's all kinds of issues with that which I won't go into and we don't want to go down that road. <laughs> and so it means that everything still needs to keep going um, and also we need to keep checking on all of the collections so we have this this building here the museum but we also occupy three other locations um, or a few other locations on the dockyard that all have some form of collection in, whether it's a store or whether it's a workroom or something like that. Um, so we have to go and check on them, check all of those are working. We have um, artifacts that are in tanks and over time the, the solution in the tank will evaporate off so we have to keep filling those up and when, when you're talking about tanks that have like 20,000 litres of water in, you can imagine that takes quite a long time to do. So. Um, I'm, I'm the only person, we have two maintainers who are working in the museum and all the equipment here, but then I'm the only person who hasn't been furloughed on the conservation and collection side. So there's a lot to do to try and pick up all of that. And it's, it's all things that I'm familiar with, but they're not, they're not, it's not my job. I'm not a conservator. Um, I'm not a collections assistant. So they're not, they're not the things that are, very, are totally intuitive to me. So I'm trying, trying to like piece it all together. So. It, yeah, it's, it's very busy and then all of my normal job, most of that has kind of continued too, so 
it's, it's quite hectic at the moment. So obviously, if you could argue, the most important object in a museum is the ship. Uh, there are plenty of others, obviously, but um, it's a vital uh, draw on the visitors, obviously, to see the ship. What happens if you turn off the environmental controls? What, what would happen to the, the wood of the ship? So the thing with the, with the wood and with all the collection, if you, almost the, mo the most important thing is for it to be a stable environment. So there are set temperatures and humidity where it's the best that it can be, but almost the worst thing it can be is that it really fluctuates, which of course the natural ambient temperature, you know, if you go out in the morning and then the middle of the day, it feels quite different. And, and that's the worst thing because it's essentially what happens is the, the, uh, the material will take on water that's in the air and then let it go again and then take it on again and it kind of can stress the material. So physically what, would, what could happen with something like the ship is you would get, um, yeah, you'd get actually both physical and chemical changes potentially. So the, the wood could start to dry out, move away from its kind of like natural resting point because there is, whilst it is predominantly dry, there is some moisture in there. Uh, if that all came out, you could get some shrinkage, it could start cracking. Um, worse than that, if things start to um, change in terms of their dimensions, it could then start to move because it's not quite pieced together properly anymore. Uh, and then if things start to move, obviously that creates huge problems for me. Um, but then there's differences that you don't, you can't see with the naked eye immediately because the wood and, and the rest of our collection, a lot of what a lot of the problems that I have to deal with are because of things that are in the artifacts that shouldn't be there, and that's because of hundreds of years being buried in the sea. Um, so there's all kinds of elements in seawater that get into them, um, and they shouldn't be there, and over time they can cause problems. So particularly with the ship, you have things in there that then when you expose it to the air, they can change and potentially form acids which can degrade the wood. So, so there's a whole range of things that can happen if we don't have that stable environment. And what about some of the objects that aren't wood? I mean, there's leather, there's iron, there's all sorts of metals. What, presumably you have to treat those in different ways, do you? Yeah, yeah. So the, with the wood, we, some of the treatment that we did, you'll remember that we used to spray the ship. That was because the wood, whilst it's in fantastic condition, considering kind of everything it's been through, um, they, some of it had degraded. So we treated it with something called polyethylene glycol to compensate for that lost wood. Uh, in other materials, say for example the cannonballs, you have chlorine that's got into them and this is from the salt in seawater. And that can cause a lot of problems because it, 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 there's, a, there's a corrosion product that forms with the chlorine in it, which is very, very damaging. It essentially, the, the corrosion when it forms takes up a bigger volume than the original metal, so it just breaks out of it. It gets so, so much pressure builds up that then it'll just fracture. Well, a bit like ice being bigger than water when it's frozen. So yeah, it, yeah, so, so, it, just, it's, so it, okay. it just gets bigger and bigger. And then so that's often what you'll see with the, the cannonballs, that the ones that have sadly um, become damaged is that bits just fragment off because you've got natural cracks in it and the chlorine has got into there and then moisture has got into there and then air gets into there and then all those things together it starts to form this corrosion and then it just will start to, to crack on the surface. Um, so for those actually the best thing to try and do is to try and get rid of the chlorine so we do soaking treatments on those um, and then one of the things I've been looking at more recently is some of our bricks because they which actually is in it, it's interesting talking about the bricks because it's not something that people will often think about being in this collection and we've got thousands of them um, from the galley and from ballast and they 
are um, they, they went through a kind of a, a wash as well. Everything in the collection went through a kind of basic cascade wash to get rid of um, the salt and also just debris from the sea and everything and like is that. that wash, is that wash just clean water? Yeah. Is, it's no, no chemicals involved? No, no, no. Right. It's, it, ideally, you would do it with a pure water so you're not getting any of the normal elements that would be in, in tap water, which are completely harmless, but you just don't want to introduce more stuff into the item. Um, so the bricks recently, I've started doing some research on, on those because you find that you, again, it's, it's similar elements that you get problems with in the wood and forming acids, but with these as well, they, they, form, they form crystals and when it gets humid, they, they essentially go into a liquid again and then they recrystallize. And each time that happens, the crystal gets bigger and then it just breaks the brick. So it can be really, really damaging. So again, it's one of those things where there's a physical impact um, and also a chemical impact where it can kind of degrade the material. So, and that's quite common throughout the collection, really, that it can be those two things, which, which are connected as well a, a lot of the time. Because if, you, if, you, if something starts to disintegrate in acid, then it loses its structural um, stability, basically, and then you'll start to see those physical properties getting damaged or, or altered. And is that that's true for soft materials as well, like leather and... Um, they, they, yeah, they, I mean, they, they suffer from, um, you know, bits of the material being lost. They, you, you do find actually with things like that, the, the cascade washing worked better because obviously they're, they're not as, they're not as thick. So it was easier to try and get things out of them. So they, they usually are in pretty good condition. Um, and I know that with some of the leather, where you could see bits of iron, because it looks very orangey, it's quite easy to see, uh, treatments were done with a chemical that could basically scavenge that iron off. And when you've got an object like that, when it's nice and flat, it's relatively easy to do that. When you've got a ship like that, <laughs> and you've got iron that's kind of percolated all the way through it, it's nearly impossible to do. Well, so let's just pick up a little bit on the, the science of conservation then, because this museum over the years has been responsible for developing some techniques. How do you actually go about developing techniques for conservation and restoration? Um, and indeed, actually, before we go any further, what's the difference between conservation and restoration? Okay, so conservation, um, the best way to think of it is that you're trying to do as little as possible to stabilise the material. So, and also, you're not... Um, kind of substituting anything new in. So everything that you see, say for example with the ship, that's all original Mario's material. The only thing that isn't is the polyethylene glycol that we've put in to stabilise it. And we've only put enough in to give it that stability and not any more. When you talk about restoration, it would be, say, something like Victory next door to us, where some of the, the timbers are not the original timbers. And obviously, it's completely understandable for them because they're exposed to the elements outside and there's no way it would survive otherwise. Um, so that's the kind of, um, broadly, the, the, the difference, that you're not adding anything new and you're trying to do as little as possible to keep it authentic. Yeah, less intervention, basically. Yes, okay. yeah. Okay, so going back now then to the science, how do you go about developing new scientific techniques what makes you say, oh, well, if we use that chemical, this will work and so on? Um, it, all, it all starts with what the material needs um, and understanding what's happened to it, which actually is why I'm quite suited to this job because my, my background is in material science, which is all about understanding what a material is made of, how it may have changed, and then the, the impact of those changes on the properties that it has. Uh, so it starts with, yeah, understanding what we have. You know, for example, so the, the, the ship is made of wood, but what type of wood is it and um, how is it degraded? And then you can start to think about, well, what would be something suitable to, to go in and treat? 
treat it. So uh, something like, um, th there are various different treatments that are used for wood. Peg, uh, peg polyethylene glycol is probably the most common. Um, and there's loads of different reasons it's chosen because it's, it's, it's relatively, it's used in a lot of stuff actually. It's like quite, it's a filler used for like toothpaste and all that kind of stuff. So it's not very harmful. It's in the great scheme of things, it, it's, not, um, it's not that expensive and it was quite easy to handle. So all these kind of fed into it. Um, in terms of the, the kind of developing new materials and developing new techniques, it's, it's all about the, the collaborations and learning from other people and the, you know, the scientists that I work with in other institutes. You'll, you'll talk to them about maybe some of the, the issues that you're having and collectively you'll think, oh, well, maybe if we use this technique, that might be able to answer that question. And this is just how it evolves. And then you think, a lot of the time for me, I'll think, right, well, I've done, I've done this technique on the wood and it's told me that. Is there a way that I could apply that to a different material? Would that, would that help? Is is it, gonna, is it gonna tell me something? Um, and so, it, yeah, it, it is all, it all comes back to then how we're gonna look after the collection. So that's great. So you, you've done the science and you start to conserve all the objects. As you talked about, the, there's environmental controls in the museum uh, itself and in the, in the showcases. What, what controls those environmental controls, both individually and, and for the, the main ship itself? So the, it, it varies between the different systems. So if I start with the ship hull, so all of the air around the ship is, con, is controlled. In a sense, that's, its, that's the showcase. Um, that has, below us, in the dock, there are three air handling units which create that environment, and they feed in through ducts into the ship hull. Um, the gallery opposite the ship, it's on three levels, but it is actually one, um, one, air, one volume, sorry. Um, and that ha again has units which are in another plant room which then feed in. And then the individual showcases all have their own control unit underneath. So they have then, and in all places, you have the ability to heat or cool or dehumidify or humidify. So um, they can do a lot of things. Um, and it's, yeah, it's all about just trying to keep it as, as stable as possible. And presumably, therefore, in those showcases, they all have to have similar types or similar materials in them because one material will want more temperature than and more humidity than another. Is that the case? Well, in, interest, in an ideal world, you would. Um, interestingly, in our last, in our old museum, we did have materials separated. So you would separate the organics of the wood, the leather, things like that, from the inorganics of the metal, the metals, and things like that. Um, in this museum, we haven't done that, partly because it's quite difficult to then tell the story. So when, we, when you have a particular theme, say a character case and it's all their things, they didn't have, say, only organic um, items. And particularly the, the gallery that's across from the ship, which is kind of the mirror image and has the items where they were found, it would be impossible to do that. So what we've done here is we've gone for the conditions that you would typically use for organics. And the reason for that is that they are, are the most kind of in, they're more likely to degrade so that a lot of the metals are more stable so and this still gives those metals a kind of stable environment to be in. And, and how is that monitored? Is uh, there presumably there are monitoring devices in all of the showcases oh, or, yes. and, and, in the, and in the ship hall? Yeah all over the ship so we when you walk around the museum you'll see in each of the showcases that the, there are these small um, white monitors and also they're dotted all around the ship as well and what these do is they feed into a system and they record the temperature and the humidity uh, every kind of five ten minutes so we we can at any time we can look at that and see what's happening in that showcase um, and also we can look retrospectively 
as well. So we have the whole data since since day one, which is which is really really useful. Um, and also, what we can do with these is you can set an alarm on them. So, for example, we I had just last week that uh, an alarm on one of the monitors in the ship hole went and then it pings me an email so then I know to go and look and see if the system is running as it should do and it, and it was it just it was it had very slightly gone out but it's a really handy system where I can then think right well has that got so I can go and look at the data sometimes you can see that it's just like spiked and come back and it's just one of those things or I might see that for for that since the morning it might have started going up um, or for example sometimes our our maintenance team, the bits of kit, they'll need work on them. So they'll give me a call and say, look, it's likely there's, you're going to get alarms today because we need to just turn it off slightly and then get it back online again. So, yeah, it all, there is a lot of kit and stuff behind the scenes that's all linked together. And, and um, yeah, I'm just still actually years down the line, we're kind of getting to grips with all the different things that you, you can do and all the information that you can get from that data um, retrospectively. Um, in fact, one of the things that we've been doing, looking at a lot now is trying to look at how... Um, energy efficient a lot of the kit is and that's where all this data that we've got on all the different parameters gets, is really handy because you can then tie it to what were the settings on the kit what did that mean for the showcases how does that correlate to the outside weather conditions the conditions in here the number of visitors all this kind of stuff which I find really interesting. <laughs> yeah, well no but it's important isn't it and have you had you know through that monitoring have you had any scary moments over the years has there been a moment in time where you think oh Christ there is actually something wrong here? Um, not so much scary, Think, things that were quite frustrating I would say, um, particularly when, because we opened the museum in 2013 and then we it, it, it wasn't as it is now, so we had windows looking into the ship hall because we were still going through quite an active phase of conservation. Um, and then when we opened the uh, the ship hall up, that changed the volume around the ship, so it changed a lot of the... It, it, we basically changed what we were asking the kit to do, so there was quite a lot of um, figuring out the different settings then. And what we were finding, because you, you have the top gallery where you're in the same enclosure as the ship, that the, the airlock doors weren't quite working as they should, so you could see the conditions at the ship pole that they just would, at about 10 o'clock, just around when we opened, that it would, the humidity would start to come up and then it would go down again. And it was just, and it wasn't a huge amount, but it was really annoying for a while because we couldn't quite figure out what it was doing and then we have now, so it's nice and stable again. So, so there's things like that. So do visitors make a difference? Do we give off humidity and heat? And yeah. You, uh, things have to adjust for the number of visitors? And yeah, so that's, that's why we have this, this system. In fact, interestingly, uh, we learned quite a few lessons from Vassar in Stockholm. They had noticed that they were getting these salts forming on the wood and they realised it was from humidity. So, you know, if you've got a whole load, say it's tipping it down outside and you've got a whole group of people coming in with their wet bags and coats and that and then walk in, they, that, that moisture just goes into the air. And you can't see that, but it's everywhere around it and all these materials will just like soak it up. So they realised that and then they built a, a really good... Um, air conditioning system for the entire building so we we based a lot of what we did on that because we saw some of the problems that that they'd had so that's why we there's lots of little things in the museum actually that the when you first walk in and there's galleries you go through where it's not quite an airlock but it, it's a two sets of doors and we show a film there mm -hmm. and that does it helps with visitor flow and lots of different things but it also does buffer a bit as well people coming in it's not just this whoosh of air straight from outside it's like kind of slows it down a bit and then when you go into the ship pole yeah you can't you you go through one door and the next door won't open until the other one's shut and that just kind of tempers it all yeah. so you're not bringing in loads of moisture. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. 
So throughout all the years that you've been doing this and developing techniques and so on, is there, is there one piece of research or one particular scientific technique that you think, yeah, that's it, that, I'm really pleased with that? Um, I think one, one of the things that I really enjoy doing is the, um, some of the experiments we do where we use something called a synchrotron. Um, and this is my background, basically. I, that's how I started off in research science. It's basically a very, very bright X-ray source, and you can do lots of different techniques with it. You can, um, say, use X-rays to understand what something is made of, so get like chemical composition. But you can also do imaging and stuff like that. So we did. We've done some research on um, some of the cannonballs, some of the corrosion that I was talking about. So we've taken a piece of the um, the cannonball and put it into the beamline, and it basically then it you can you know rotate it you can slice through it so you can look from the surface of the sample you can then look where the cracks are where the metal is where the corrosion is you can then start to do all kinds of clever stuff with correlating those like are, are the are the are the spots of corrosion always near the surface are they near cracks are they not mm -hmm. and it's um so I, I love stuff like that and we've been able to do similar with the wood as well where we you image what's there and then you can if you have the right standards for what you think might be inside the wood you can then kind of finger do a kind of fingerprint analysis basically so then you can not only know what's there but where it is because that's the thing that can be really important because if i want to develop a treatment say for the wood it's you know if you do a bit of analysis on a bit of wood that's this big and it tells you that oh there's you know x compound in there if i don't know where it is how can i tailor a technique that's designed to go in and get it and take it out again so so those kind of techniques where you can um combine it together are really really clever and exciting it sounds very clever really it really does <laughs> um so similar question then over the years that you've been here have you uh, developed a particular fondness for any particular object? Is there, is there one object that you look at that's maybe something that you think of as, as a scientist um, that appeals to you or do you, can you view them as a, a member of the general public and think, oh, I really like those peppercorns or whatever it might so be? I, yeah, I think I could, I'm going to cheat and answer it in two ways because there is the way that, you, that I look at it as, uh, with, as a material scientist, as the kind of person responsible for caring for the collection. And I think in that sense, purely because of the amount of work I've had to do on it, it would be the ship. Um, when I first started working here, it was a year before we started um, drying the ship. So I was put solely on getting it ready for that. And that was everything from physically preparing the ship, washing it down, all that kind of real hands-on stuff to developing programs of work where we would look at how things change in the wood using a synchrotron. There's actually one just up the road um, in Oxfordshire called Diamond Light Source. So we've done a whole load of work with them. Um, so it's been just such a range of different things. Um, I mean, even to this day, like, you know, one day we'll be taking samples that we'll go and do these kind of sophisticated techniques on. And then in the last year, I've been on the ship with a backpack hoover, hoovering. <laughs> so it's kind of like, and, and everything in between. So um, from a kind of work perspective, I think the ship definitely holds a special place in my heart. Um, from a, looking at it as a collection, the things, the things that I really, really like are, are the kind of everyday objects and the things that remind you that there was people on board this, this was a, a living, breathing ship um, with, and with all the things they needed. So things like the, the knit combs and stuff like that. And there's also a beautiful little wooden spoon that I quite like as well. And I almost like it so much for its simplicity. It's just, mm -hmm. just lovely. And, and then when you think about with these things, the, the tools that they would have had available to them to make them, especially say with the knit combs, and you look at how precise they are. It's just, it blows my mind. Yeah, I'm not surprised. I mean, there are some amazing objects mm. in here. 
Was it, is it something like 19,000? We've got over 19,000 in the collection. There's about 5,000 on display here, which actually gives you an idea of how many artefacts 19,000 is. I mean, we have, we have a cellar um, just across the way where we have um, timber stored, and we have just over 4,000 timbers. And they are a mixture of barrel staves and logs and um, quite a lot of the timbers from the port side. So we, we never had all of that, but we do have some bits. And also, actually, interestingly, some of the cabins and partition ways and stuff like that. So one of the dreams long term is that we'll be able to conserve them and reunite them with the ship and keep telling more of the story. That would be fantastic, wouldn't mm, it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Brilliant. Thanks, Eleanor. Yes, those personal objects are amazing, aren't they? Mm. And as you say, this is the only place in the country, actually in the world, where you can mm. come and see this many real Tudor objects. They mm -hmm. are all real. All the objects on display in this museum are the real thing. Yeah. Um, and it is absolutely fantastic and completely unique. It's brilliant. Mm. Thank you so much, Eleanor, for sitting in talking with us. It's been really terrific. Thanks. Very, very interesting, as always.